Emotional intelligence is a critical component to healthy workplaces that practice psychological safety. It is even more critical when our world has been disrupted in a way that has physically disconnected us from one another. In this episode, I speak to Teresa Quinlan, an entrepreneur and the founder of the IQ plus EQ equals TQ formula, where we discuss the importance of knowing ourselves well enough to have the ability to think of other people first. Once we're rooted in ourselves, we know ourselves. We Then we can remove ourselves from the pole position and place other people first. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's possible for us to, I don't personally think it's possible for us to remove ourselves from the pole position until we're rooted in who we are. Because then we're always grasping for, I need to be first because that's the way that I feel valuable. Mm-hmm. And if we can be rooted in ourselves, we're already valuable. We don't need confirmation from other people. Then we can get out of the first position and put other people there. I mean, I want to live in that world. So how important is emotional intelligence in a disrupted world? And how can we leverage empathy to better understand the challenges of others while improving our knowledge of ourselves? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Teresa Quinlan, thank you for joining me. I'm so excited, Rebecca. Thanks for asking me to be here. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about Teresa. (laughs) I'm a human being. Yes. (laughs) I love this question because it gives the opportunity to explore really anything about our humanity. You know, I'm a daughter, a sister, a sister-in-law, a wife, a mother. I'm a coach, a consultant, I'm a runner, I'm, I'm many things. And I think all of us can sort of relate that we have these descriptors of, of who we are. And then more recently, and by recent, I mean, probably in the last 10 years, I've given more thought to, you know, how am I, um, as opposed to who am I? And how I am is really sort of consume my thoughts in this effort of really understanding how I want to show up in the world, how I want to serve other people. And what I've discovered about myself is I'm a really good listener. So how I am in the world is a creator of space for other people to explore who they are. And that's what I help people really figure out is who they are so they can get to the how. Absolutely. There definitely is a difference between how we present ourselves and what we put out in the world versus how we perceive ourselves to be. How do we be more mindful and purposeful and how we connect with other people? And I think to some extent, we feel more of the desire to do so now than we ever have because we feel the isolation differently than we've ever had to. So how does that kind of factor into how we should bring ourselves to the world? It kind of reminds me of when I was a kid and we would go to the candy store and I would want some candy. And, you know, my parents would say, no, that stuff's not really good for you. And it would make me want it even more. And so now when we're in this sort of space of, you know, you can't um, get close to the people outside of, you know, the four walls of your home, it makes us want it even more. There's a certain maybe sense of, I don't really know what that is of longing 
to have something that is outside of our grasps. And perhaps there's also this sense of understanding of why do I want it so much? Maybe perhaps isn't because I can't have it, but it's because now I've understood how important it is to me. And so right now, in sort of this social distancing or physical distancing, our realization of how important it was to us because it is something we can't have right now. And I think that highlights really something of necessity in, in um, how do we operate in our life all the time with that sort of thought process of what is it that I need to survive? What is it that I need to thrive? And, and knowing not to take those things for granted and maybe perhaps get rid of all the other stuff that doesn't fit those criteria. Right. I think everyone's feeling some level of loss, loss mm. of our daily routine, loss of our, some of our social connections, trying to find different ways or avenues to maintain those connections. So for instance, what my family has done, I've got four kids at home, so it's me and my husband, so all six of us are cooped up. And then my sister and her fiance out in Colorado, my parents who live in Chicago, all of us got together for the second week in a row and played the game Five Crowns over Zoom. And what was interesting about that is because we all love to play five crowns. We get relatively competitive about it too. <laughs> but the fact that we can kind of all get together and share that experience has, has been good. It does feel very different though than it, than it would if we were in person with one another. But more and more, I think people are trying to find those different avenues to connect. It's because we feel the, the need to or we feel something missing or something a little bit off. Mm-hmm. I agree. It's a great driver for us when we don't feel on, when we feel off, when we don't feel balanced, we really do seek. And sometimes we will find any creative way to be able to sort of resolve that feeling of unease or dis-ease. I have a friend that says it in that way. It's a dis-ease about the self, which I just love as opposed to calling it a disease. Mm-hmm. There's something out of balance, out of whack with us. And so we experience this drive. And sometimes for some people, I think it feels like a desperation. And for others that can be still with it to understand what it is, it doesn't feel, it feels intentional and it feels focused and their creative juices get sparked because they know what it is and why it is. And they just have to figure out how. Sure. Mm-hmm. And how about empathy? or let's like, this is what I kind of thought about it the other day. I've been asking everybody the default question, how are you? Right. And that question these days has a different level of weight to it. Because when I ask someone, how are you? I instantly go to a place like, I wonder if this person I'm asking this question to is okay. I don't want to make too many assumptions, but that's definitely coming from a place of realization that all of us are going through some kind of disruption in the moment. And is that helping some of us become more aware of empathy of what people might be going through in this time. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I, I don't, unfortunately I don't think for everyone it will. I do think perhaps for more people than before it provides the opportunity. And I think what I'm seeing and hearing around me is many more people are stepping into that, getting a little bit more comfortable with trying to understand what other people are experiencing. And we just had a family discussion yesterday. Discussion. Sounds like we all got around the table. But we were, we were by Zoom. I was with my siblings and then my mom, once she figured out how to download the app and get on, <laughs> she joined us. It was miraculous. She was so excited. <laughs> but we were having this discussion and my brother was sharing 
and my brother has a high level of stress tolerance. He, he adapts really well. He rolls with the punches. I mean, he, he goes out into the wild and, and kind of survives on minimal stuff. So he's tolerant. Let's just say that. He's also got a pretty strong survival list for life. And so this for him is just sort of, yeah, I'll follow the, the recommendations and, you know, we'll all come through this. We're going to be fine. It's not an an unrealistic level of optimism. It's, it's quite a healthy level of optimism and reality testing at the same time. But his partner, she's really struggling and, and she's quite emotional. At the beginning of our conversation, he had mentioned this. He's like, I just don't know how to help or what to do. And I said, well, one of the things that's great is that you're asking for the help. You, you recognize that you can't provide the solution, but you want to. So you're empathizing that there's a need there that you, you just aren't able to and, and now you're seeking sort of the experience expertise of three other women because it's one boy and three girls in our family of three other women to maybe say you know what might she be experiencing and so our collective was able to support him in his understanding of empathy and have some solutions that he could then offer back towards her so sometimes I think Rebecca where we might get stuck a little bit is empathy doesn't mean we have to fix. Empathy doesn't mean we have to yeah. agree. Empathy just means, it really just means we're going to stay in the space with someone to understand what they're experiencing. And that can be very difficult for people because it can lead to a level of frustration or confusion of like, why can't I get what you're getting? And oftentimes I think that error comes because we're trying to understand the trigger for their emotion as opposed to just understanding the emotional state that they're in. Because most of us can say at one point in our life, we've been frustrated. At one point in our life, we've been sad. And another point in our life, we've been offended. We can relate to the emotional state and where we err in empathy is trying to relate to the trigger of the emotional state. And that's where it gets frustrating because I won't be triggered by the same things you're triggered by. So if we can sort of uh, maybe reframe empathy and say, uh, let's try to understand the emotion they're experiencing, we'll get there a lot faster. And I think it's interesting. I've had a lot of conversations lately about people needing to recognize that emotion's part of the human experience. Mm -hmm. That denying that we have emotion never works for us quite well expressing our emotions in healthy ways and psychologically safe ways where people aren't judging us but hearing us can, can be very beneficial. But I think a lot of folks in this day and age want to try to follow the advice of, you know, meaning positive and optimistic and might refrain from sharing, you know what, I'm struggling. I'm struggling mm -hmm. right now because my life's been disrupted because I'm uncertain about my job or I'm uncertain if I'm going to get sick or family members might get sick. And so how do we, as friends, as fellow human beings, help each other feel safe in, in expressing how we're feeling right now? Mm -hmm. My favorite strategy is to ask the speaker the role that you're playing for them. Mm. So often when I listen, I listen to problem solve. That's my default listening style. And so when people start talking about what they're experiencing, when I go right to thinking, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? <laughs> What's, what's a good solution that might help them here? And if they're not looking for problem solving and I jump in with, you know what I would do, <laughs> they're going to feel like you're not listening to me. And so oftentimes, if people don't assign me the role that they need at an appropriate time in their dialogue, I will ask what the role is that they need me to play. What is it that you, and I'll ask in a way of, 
what is it that you need from me? Do you need me to listen? Did you want me to sort of challenge you? Like, what do you need, need from me right now? And they will give you the role to play. And that makes it so much easier for us to then be there and allow people to know, I actually just need you to listen. It kind of lowers both of our guards, both the guard of expectation of what I'm supposed to be able to do in this situation for you, and also the guard of them thinking what they want from us, but not having articulated it, and they're not sure if they can go where they need to go, and so they sort of tiptoe around it until both of us are just throwing our hands up in the air and going, what do you need from me, what I need from you? Communication is a really big part of us, I think, emotionally being able to connect and then create the psychological safety for someone to disarm, so to speak, let the armor down and be able to say, I'm struggling, or this is frustrating for me, or you've upset me, and whatever they need to say, in a way that the other person can then be in the same space, feeling psychologically safe to receive whatever it is that they're going to say. Right. And I, the thing that kind of pops in my head as you talk through that, thinking about all of the people working virtually right now mm-hmm. and how that has changed the dynamic of teams, the workplace, in some respects, leadership. So the multitudes of leaders now that are working with remote teams, trying to keep those folks engaged, trying to be mindful about how they're feeling, how to, how to be mindful about how to keep them motivated towards their work. And so what would be an advice that you would give to a leader currently working with a remote team and how to keep them feeling heard and connected with one another? I think it comes down to making sure you remember you manage projects and processes and you lead people. And so we have to be very clear that right now, no matter where you are, whether you're virtual or happen to be in the same office space, Your job right now is to lead people, and that can only happen through connection. You have to know what they're experiencing, which means you're going to have to ask them what they're experiencing, and you're going to have to be able to sit and listen and not solve, potentially hold expectations, be creative in your problem solving, provide concessions where necessary, allow people to emotionally express themselves, because if their emotions are in the way, Their logical brain is not going to be very effective that day. So for them to get anything done that you need to manage (laughs) will probably be problematic. And it will just sort of stack stress upon stress upon stress because really nobody wants to come to work and let their peers down or let their leader down. They don't want to do that. And yet sometimes they come with life. And they're already feeling this level of disengagement or this level of sort of, I'm not 100%. And so I know what I give today isn't going to be 100%. And I'm not really sure I can even tell my boss that. And so what we need is for leaders to step up so that it's okay for the people to say, I'm not at 100% today, I am at 95. And for me to say, 95 is great. Is there anything I could do for you to get to to get you to 100? Is there anything you could do for yourself to get to 100? And if there is, let's do those things. If there isn't, let's operate at 95. And perhaps there's something you're going to do between today's work and tomorrow's work to elevate you back to 100. But perhaps the reality is right now, there won't be. And we're going to have to accept 95 for a little while. And for most people, 95% effort is pretty darn good. Very good. <laughs> yeah, I would yeah. say. Very good. 
And I, I think that's what's really interesting. There might be a risk there that some workers, especially I'd say, I'd say high achievers, people who value high levels of achievement mm-hmm. and having to accept that they may not be able to reach the level of achievement they typically would for multitudes of reasons, either because their own motivation might take a hit or their own energy might take a hit or um, that of their coworkers, that of their leaders. Um, that could impact their ability to achieve to the same extent that they they might otherwise. Is there some level of kind of mindfulness or forgiveness we need to provide to ourselves in order for us to stay healthy during this time? That's such a great question, Rebecca. Absolutely. Whether I'm a leader, an individual, it doesn't really matter my role. Everyone requires that responsibility of like capital A self-awareness. And so am I paying attention to what I am emotionally experiencing, and then how that's impacting my capacities, whether it's my capacities in performance or my capacities to be empathetic and more, my capacities in my self-care, how is it influencing my entire life? A really sort of quick self-assessment is to, is to sit down and say, how am I doing? <laughs> like at the beginning of every day and do a self-scan. Of, am I at 100%? Do I feel like I'm at 100%? No, I'm a little off today. Okay. Can I be all right with that? Can I flourish within that space? And if I'm not okay with it, what do I want to do about it? What do I need to do about it? Because achievers are good at problem solving and setting in front of them an action that can elevate them to 98% or 100%. And then taking that action and actually doing it instead of being in this space, I'm an achiever. And so when I'm below 100, I don't have, it's not easy for me to go, sure, 98 is fine. It's actually very difficult for me to do that. So I do this practice when I'm below 100% as I sit and I just go, what is it that I need? Because I won't be able to move forward until I remove the barrier to be able to be at 100%. I just won't. It's practice of assessing and going, "Mm, I didn't do my workout today. And that's the thing that's getting in my way is I didn't physically take care of myself. So I drop everything and I go do a workout. And then when I come back, I'm at 100%. And it was worth the 30-minute break I needed to take in order to do that. Or whatever the barrier is, removing the barrier in order to move forward. Right. And it does. I love the fact that you brought that kind of like the self-awareness piece. I think that's so important, especially now, for us to stay aware of how we're feeling you know, how we're potentially behaving. Mm-hmm. I think that's another aspect of this as well, is that um, let's just say this moment could make us cranky, mm-hmm. make us a little irritable mm-hmm. with one another, maybe because we're in close quarters with the people that we love the most, which sometimes is fabulous and sometimes creates some bickering. I'll say that, you know, I, yeah, like I said, I've got a family of six home right now and siblings, they don't always get along. And there are moments I have to play peacekeeper and separate people. But there are also moments that we've had tremendous connection. And in a lot of respects, I feel closer to my family now than maybe I ever have. But how do we kind of reconcile, I guess, those moments where maybe we're not at our best? Maybe we let it get to us or maybe we get a little irritable and and maybe uh, behave in ways that uh, we wouldn't otherwise. Mm. I'm a female, which means I have a menstrual cycle. And generally before that hits, I can feel it. And I feel it in my mood. And one of the things that I've done for maybe the last 15 years, when I feel it, I say it out loud to the people around me. Mm. I do this for two reasons. One is for my own accountability to my behavior. So I know that I'm irritable 
but that doesn't give me permission to be an asshole. So by saying it out loud, I'm holding myself accountable in their eyes as well. The second thing is I trust them deeply, the family that is around me. Even when I led a team, the team that was around me, I would do the same thing for them as I would tell them how I was, my mood, especially if it was off from what was my stellar mood. (laughs) And because I trust them to that depth, I knew that if I told them that, they would never use it against me. They would watch the triggers that are known triggers of mine. They would even be helpful in their behaviors around me. And so that's one thing that I think we can do is if we've got the self-acknowledgement of it, we can communicate it outwards, knowing that the people around us will be generous with us and be gentle with us until we can self-correct. And the other thing I think is, you know, as a human being, we're going to make those behavioral errors. The faster we can come to apologizing and course correcting, the better. And so to do that, we have to watch our ego and watch what we call pride and be able to set that aside for a much greater outcome, which is stronger relationships, deeper levels of trust and compassion. The quicker we course correct and apologize, the more others um, are able to maintain that level of trust with us. The more we apologize out loud and swallow that sense of pride, the less often we want to experience that because that's an emotion. That's a really uncomfortable emotion to experience. And we try to stay away from those kinds of things. So when we're acknowledging them and doing them, the likelihood of us repeating that and re-experiencing it gets lower and lower and lower. And so we become better in our behaviors the more often we do that. But I think then we also set up an environment of psychological safety for the people around us where they feel safe to model the same behaviors. And I love the fact that you brought up that trust and honesty piece because I think that's really important. Be honest about those moments when we may not be at our best, but giving, you know, kind of de facto permission, I guess, to the people around us that I will still accept you if you are cranky today too. Mm -hmm. You're still accountable for your behaviors to your point before, because that's really important. But we could move forward and understand that none of us is perfect. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is such a good point. Modeling and leadership, whether I'm, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the matriarch of the family and I'm modeling the behavior I would expect of everyone else around me, or I'm the leader of a team and I'm modeling the behavior that's expected. That psychological safety is so important. It's important when we want to ask them, "How are you?" to be able to get an actual answer that is the truth for them, as opposed to getting the surface Mm. answer that just sort of, for them, maybe just gets you out of their space. Yeah, I love the truth of of where we're at, the truth of who we are. I'm going to actually transition that topic to around truth of who we are and how we present ourselves out in the world. And let's talk about social media for a minute. Social media is taking a different role to some extent now in our current environment than it had. So what is your thought around how authentic we can and should be on social media? One of the things I've learned about myself is that if I'm willing to put something on social media in its truest, most authentic form, I will have needed to already work through any of the pain or trauma that it has caused or been for me. So for example, if I'm going to speak on a podcast in an interview or in video clips that I post on emotional intelligence about physical abuse and my own story, I needed to have come through the recovery of that trauma to be able to speak to it because the world of social media will have comments related to that piece that I've put out there that I have to already have worked through. 
their, their words of encouragement, their words of appreciation and gratitude, their words of um, condonement, their words of blaming or shaming can't have an impact on me. So I will have already have needed to have done the descent into that trauma to have been able to rise and come through it and emotionally have processed all of it before I choose to share that on social media. Because otherwise I won't be able to withstand when someone does a thumbs up or a thumbs down. None mm. of it. None of it will serve me in the greater purpose of discovering my authenticity or discovering who I am. Right. And I think um, once you've found that, I love that so powerful, by the way, mm. being able to connect to your trauma to the point that regardless of how folks might react to that trauma or what you might have to say about it, that you are prepared for the responses you might get and not allow that to shake how you feel about yourself, about your experience and what you've learned from it. Mm -hmm. Social yeah. media for me is not about me. So and what I mean by that is when I put out a, a video or even a message, a written message around emotional intelligence, I'm doing it because I would have had a thought or an experience usually the day before in which I thought this will serve other people. And so I, I get the video up and I push it out there and I'm like, I hope someone grabs some, a nugget from this. I do come back to, I come back to them because when people respond to it or have a question or a comment, I like to read their comments and respond and expand the conversation. I'm not looking for how many people loved it, liked it, praised it. I'm not looking for that. I'm putting it out there to be of service to other people. Whether people like it or not, it's out of my hands. As soon as I put it out there, it's completely out of my hands. And I think one, I, not that I think, I know all of the research points to it. Everything you read about social media is that this is where people drown in social media is because they're putting it out there to serve their soul. They're putting it out there to serve their esteem. And the reality is you yeah. won't ever get enough back to serve that. You won't ever. Right. I think it's an interesting lesson that a lot of us have to teach our kids. We've had a lot of great conversations around the people that you see on Instagram, on TikTok and other places. You don't know how often or how, how many times they've tried or how many filters that they've used and how many things have gone out in the world before they felt that it was perfect. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not the reality of, of kind of who we are sometimes, what, what we might put out there, what we might see. Mm -hmm. And I think um, I wonder you know, about, yeah, the younger generations. Mm -hmm. A Gen Z coming up. Yeah, really good point. Especially because um, a, a lot of the esteem is driven in that way. The, the more time and attention given to social media, the less to actually connecting with people, the less downtime. Uh, I don't know about you, how many times when you were a kid, you said, I'm bored. Mm -hmm. I mean, all, I, I, all the time. <laughs> a, lot. Oh, a lot, a lot. We would say, I'm bored. And my parents would just be like, get outside. That was their sort of standard response was get outside. And I lived in northern Ontario when I was a kid. And so, you know, we either had like nice weather or it was minus 25. Those are kind of the two options we had. So we were outside a lot when the weather was ridiculous. But there were so many hours where there was nothing to do, mm -hmm. like literally nothing to do. And it is in that time when you discover who you are, oh, you get grounded in the self is when you have boredom. But that is when your mind gets to sort of be blank 
And a blank mind leads to a creative mind. A creative mind leads to exploring the self, understanding the self. And the more rooted we are in that from a young age, but especially through those early teenage years, the more social media becomes this thing that we know how to manage it because we're already rooted. But what's ended up happening is, unfortunately, phones and devices have been given to kids at like six, seven, eight, like really young. So they haven't had the time to root in self. And mm -hmm. so the, the impact of social media has led to clinical you know, levels of depression in children that we've never seen before. And it's exactly why. Yeah, it's really interesting. There's a book called Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle. Have you read that book? I'm in it right now. You're in it. <laughs> right. So the reason I bring that up is I don't know if you've gotten to the, to the chapter yet about solitude. I Yes, I just passed it. Perfect. There you go. Let's talk about that because I feel like that loss of solitude or that ability for us to have solitude in our lives is uh, profound and really didn't impact me until I read that part of the book. So what are your thoughts? We kind of like tagging on to what you were just saying about the importance of being able to disconnect and being bored. Mm -hmm. um, how do we help kind of introduce the fact that maybe boredom and those moments of solitude are just really important for us in relation to self-discovery and our own well-being? Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this a little bit in relationship to how I grew up. And then I was also thinking about it when I was listening. I listened to a Simon Sinek interview. And so over the last few weeks, I've actually consumed quite a bit around this area. And it's amazing how when we start to consume, we really start to look at our own life on our own journey. One of the things that I had thought about was the behavior. Of course, the times that I grew up in were very different than right now. So it was a heck of a lot easier to get bored and do nothing than it certainly is now, with how much is sort of at the ready and at our fingertips for us. If we were to want to start to shift, we have to take baby steps forward because a lot of the things that we are attached to right now are, are highly addictive. So, you know, we're going to go through those withdrawal moments. And so recognizing that we're going to have to ease our way out in order to arrive at this space of solitude and sort of the depths and importance of that solitude of being and knowing of the self. And then I think one of the first best ways to do it is to do it as a family. So if you have children or if you have a spouse or someone else in the house with you, <laughs> or even maybe just if you're a solo, you could do this with your friends. We have to start to kind of do it together. So when we're coming together at dinner, there are no devices for distraction. And sometimes it's very quiet at the table. And so we're just sort of in solitude together. So no one's really saying anything, which is fine. But we also have nothing to pull us away from that silence. And that might just be 30 minutes. And we might do that 30 minutes every evening. And as painful as it might be for the first two minutes, that pain sort of dissipates quite quickly. And then we might decide devices stay off or out of our rooms. We don't bring them into our bedrooms and they stay off for the first two hours of our day when we're awake, where we're going to dedicate to this self. And you just sort of chunk away at doing more and more of these things where when we go out for a walk, nobody brings the device with mm -hmm. them. When we go out for dinner or we're going over to people's homes, devices stay away. Or when we arrive, they stay in pocket. So they're not on us. Like we just start to do, it seems so simple, and they really are very simple things. They're just difficult in execution because emotionally, you're going to feel the emotions of withdrawal. And right. if you can give yourself two minutes, the emotion, 
the withdrawal emotions will sort of dissipate and, and we'll be connecting with other people and that overwhelming sense of now, ah, I'm with people. I'm with myself. This feels really good. That will start to overwhelm those feelings of withdrawal. Right. And I, I do think those are powerful moments. And one of the things I know, it's been a while since I've made an all-day declaration, no device. I've done that before. I need to get back yeah. to it. I think it really was coming down to the solitude, kids e-learning for multiple weeks. Mm-hmm. And so we've gotten back into not separating from our devices. But I'll remember back a while ago when I did one of those no device days, my daughter coming to me at the end of the day and saying, mom, I noticed things today that I've never noticed before. And yeah, it was a proud mom moment <laughs> for me. But I think it's also important because it's things that when we were pushed outside to go because if you're bored, go outside, my sister and I would go venture out into the woods behind our house mm-hmm. and spend virtually all day there. My parents had no idea where we were, could not have gotten a hold of us if they wanted to. We came yeah. home alive, but we had great times with great memories from those, from those days. No devices. Yeah. 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 A sense of connection that, that serves you so much deeper than any sort of thumbs up, like, or whatever you could ever get from a device. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that I've talked to a lot of folks about since we've been in this pandemic is what do we learn from this? What do we learn from the experience we're in right now? Um, So tell me something you're hoping that we all learn from this experience we're in and what might make you optimistic? First and foremost, what I think I hope we all learn is the separation of nice to have, need to have Mm. on, on a consumption scale. So I know probably the biggest adjustments for us have been, we don't go out to eat. We don't go out to grab coffee. We go to the grocery store once per week. And we're mindful of how much we are, quote unquote, consuming as far as materials go. And very quickly, it's like, "Mm, we don't really need that stuff. And what it has transitioned and allowed us to do is cooking, making meals together. Whereas normally it was just sort of one person getting that ready. And there's been a lot more collective sharing of the tasks within the home, which I think for me and my family, I know will be something we carry forward. I'm optimistic because of the outpouring of individuals sharing the we can verbiage and mentality and messaging, like watching people put out there, we can thrive, we can survive, we will get through this, connect with your neighbors. These are so many positive, optimistic messages. And we can use these at any time. We don't obviously need to use them just when things are, you know, globally pandemic in their nature, that kind of mentality comes right down to the minuscule of, you know, we can tackle this project, we can tackle this problem, we can bring the garbage out together, we can do the dishes together. I'm optimistic that what perhaps we will all find is we becomes more central to us than maybe beforehand it was a little too much I. Right. We're dealing with something that's affecting everybody across the world, mm-hmm. which is a unique circumstance. And mm-hmm. I, in a lot of ways, I've felt the world seems much smaller now than it ever has, mm-hmm. that I feel like we can do a better job relating to people who are across the world, across the ocean, different countries who are experiencing a lot of the exact same things that we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. 
and a higher degree of empathy too, of actually having a broader perspective. My brother and I, we were talking about, you know, Italy and Mm -hmm. we have Italian heritage and we have an aunt and family that live in Italy. And we were talking about cultural differences of perhaps, you know, why the spread and the cases are so intense in, in that pocket. And so we talked about what culture we know with our Italian family. Most of our time was spent very close proximity. <laughs> like we don't shake hands. And, and when we meet other people, we don't necessarily shake hands unless they're really adverse to the hug and the kiss. But we would just like met you for the first time and we're right in there. So yes, things like a virus are going to spread really quickly. And to culturally ask people to sort of stop doing that is really hard to do. And culturally, they their families extended within the same household. So you have young and middle-aged and parents and your elderly grandparents all living within the same roof. And so we talked about that. We talked about that for like the community of family and how important that really is. And then also you see sort of the double-edged sword of hmm, when it comes to virus spreading, it's not helping. At the same time, they are so united in the we, even though they know it's to the detriment of some of their loved ones. There's a a poetic beauty about that. It's interesting. Beyond just what you're talking about, like a big Italian families that love to stay close to one another, you have other areas of the world too that are struggling in different ways. So you have Mm -hmm. areas like in India where large amounts of people living in slums Mm -hmm. where it's almost impossible to isolate the people in those areas and putting them at some level of risk. And, and I think one of the things that I, when I was reading that is just being aware of the fact that different people are in different circumstances, not making too many assumptions that people are having the same experience that we are, and just really being aware of people who may not have the protections that some of us might have just simply because of our status. Mm-hmm. The quickness to judge, mm-hmm. you know, I hope is one of those things that maybe decreases in all of us. The, the quickness hindsight is 2020. Mm. So, oh, they should have. (laughs) Yeah, we all should have at some point or another when we look back and go, well, why didn't we? It was because we didn't know in that moment. We didn't have the information we have now. Like minute by minute, that information is changing. It's very rare that we have to respond in a minute by minute situation where the information is different. And so we have Mm. to emotionally adjust and then have the new problem solving or solution in place. Like that is a lot to ask of a human being. We're not built to sort of take (laughs) trauma after trauma after trauma in a row and still sort of flourish. So to your point, this expansion of perspective and understanding and seeking, the learning to seek for that first we hear it all the time. Seek to understand, seek to understand, seek to understand. I am trying to understand. Maybe not first. First, what comes is all of our judgments, assumptions, our belief systems, our values. They come first. And then in that framework, I seek to understand someone else. And I go, I don't get it. (laughs) It's not really seeking to understand. Once we're rooted in ourselves, we know ourselves. Then we can remove ourselves from the pole position and place other people first. I don't think it's possible for us to, I don't personally think it's possible for us to remove ourselves from the pole position until we're rooted in who we are. Because then we're always grasping for, I need to be first because that's the way that I feel valuable. 
Mm. If we can be rooted in ourselves, we're already valuable. We don't need confirmation from other people. Then we can get out of the first position and put other people there. I mean, I want to live in that world. It sounds like a beautiful world. Yeah. So let me ask you this. One of the things that I've heard a lot lately is when we get back to normal, Mm. when things get back to normal. Yes. And I think what's really interesting is a lot of folks have different opinions on whether we will get back to what we knew as normal, what normal used to be. Uh, What's your opinion? Do you think we'll go back to the previous normal or will we come out of this in a few months uh, with uh, some type of new normal? I think it would be a shame if we went, if we returned to where we were, it would mean that we didn't learn anything. And something this sort of catastrophic in its nature requires learning. And for each person, that learning will be something different. I'm getting a little misty eyed. (laughs) For each person, that will be something that's a little bit different. And I suppose maybe for anything that we experience in life, whether it touches us closely or we're witness to it, our job is to do the learning and the growth that comes from that. Right. And there's definitely so much for us to learn. And I think what might be interesting too is to see if we do start to establish new behaviors mm-hmm. because well, first by need or mm-hmm. um, uh, because we're, we're being asked to, it'll mm-hmm. be interesting to see how much of that sticks going forward. I certainly look at what I need differently today than three months ago mm-hmm. has changed significantly. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I would have bought a lot more toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just one of those really funny things. It was an early yeah. conversation I had. Like, if the survival of humanity is based on toilet paper, we are in trouble. <laughs> but right. I understand when people panic, they do things that are unrealistic. It's, we should expect that to happen. People are going to panic. It's a pretty big deal. It's taking a lot of people outside of their comfort zone. And so we should have expected and we should always expect that people behave in ways that are illogical and irrational when they're emotionally distraught. I don't know why we're, I really don't know why we're surprised by that. I I think it's probably people would have thought it would be something different. Why, why it was toilet paper. (laughs) But, but toilet paper aside, I guess, you know, we kind of like that point about fear. Mm -hmm. And I think uncertainty is always going to breed some level of fear. How do people be successful at keeping their fear at bay in times that are so terribly uncertain? Mm. Someone recently shared this with me. Her name is Elise Kraft. And she shared with me because um, she had experienced a panic attack. And one of the things that she learned to do in a panic attack, which is sort of an extreme experience in fear, it's fear, it's a by, sorry, an end result of an elevated sense of fear. Personal safety is at risk is to say, am I okay right now? And like, right now, I'm okay. Because if I'm saying this thought, I must be okay. And I might need to say that 15 times in a row in order to calm my nervous system, in order to allow my breathing to calm, in order for me to feel what I'm actually feeling, in order for the reality of I'm actually okay right now to set in and be louder than the emotional experience or the internal dialogue that's driving something irrational. So I think one of the things that's very easy for people who are experiencing that heightened level of fear to do is just repeat that statement to themselves. Am I okay right now? Am I okay right now? It's a, like it, 
it seems like a really practical thing that people could just grab and like, oh, I heard on the show when I'm feeling this, I could just say, am I okay right now? Am I okay right now? Because in this moment, I actually am. And if I need to do it for 30 seconds or two minutes, that's better than me spiraling into the abyss. Absolutely. And I'll have to say, I actually use that. Oh, wonderful. I use that. And I, I think it really did help me kind of break that cycle of, you know, potential to predict that bad things will happen mm -hmm. uh, when there's uncertain times. And so we don't know, like I couldn't tell you what will happen a week from now, two weeks from now, two months mm -hmm. from now. Uh, so my, my choices are to worry or project. And usually if I'm going to project what two months will look like from now, if I have some level of fear of uncertainty, I'm probably not going to make a positive outlook. I'm probably going to consider it to be negative because that's where our brains go to try to keep us safe from a perceived threat which is uncertainty, of course, gives us that level of feeling of a perceived threat. So I could advocate for that, that I've used it. I, I asked my kids to use it so mm -hmm. they can break those cycles that they have too, is that right now we're okay. I remind them we have what we need. We have our we have food on the table. We have a roof over our head and right now we're good. No tigers are chasing me. I'm fine. No tigers. I think a long-term exercise is for individuals to really examine their survivor, survival list. So all of the things in life that you have overcome, it's really important for us. Oftentimes when we're in the throes of those things, we feel the intensity of them and we have to muster up tenacity and resilience and optimism mm. and then a whole bunch of skills. We have to muster it up and then we kind of get over it and we look back at it and we could look back at it in 24 hours and go, what was the big deal? Well, it's because we're over it now. <laughs> so we're emotionally relaxed. But what we end up doing is we end up carrying the wasn't such a big deal instead of carrying with us what it took to overcome that moment. Remembering not to minimize what we needed to find within ourselves because that's the stuff that we need to remind ourselves of when we're in moments that are sort of gripping us with fear. It's like, wait a minute, why am I afraid? I know that I have tenacity, resiliency, optimism. I know that I have ambition. And we just keep listing and stacking these traits and qualities and capacities that have gotten us to this point in our life. Everyone will have a, a pretty strong and intense list because life is challenging. It throws at all of us things to overcome. And so that's sort of the long-term work or the work people can start doing now as well is being able to create that survival list. So we really know that we have it and that stacks our level of resiliency for anything that we may face in the future. Even uncharted territories such as this, that a lot of us have never experienced anything like this before. There's a global pandemic that is raising levels of fear that is requiring us to do things like social distancing or physical distancing or working from home, like all of the elements that are required of it. Never experienced that before. So it isn't uh, uncommon that there are heightened levels of fear because I don't know if I can overcome something like this. Well, no. If you stack that survival list, then you will be able to say, wait a minute, I have all of these things that I've overcome in the past and I could actually use some of those for this. And all of a sudden we feel better and we minimize the fear, we dissipate the fear in reality, as opposed to sort of choosing to dissipate it in maybe some unhealthy habits, like some self-soothing habits, like maybe we are drinking a little bit more, 
or maybe we're eating a little bit more, or maybe we're watching more television, or maybe we're going to social media, maybe we're doing some unhealthy soothing, yeah. it's not going to help. No, but I think it also helps us, you know, center on what we actually need. Mm-hmm. And what we actually need are, you know, obviously basic needs, food, water, shelter, uh, but again, connections with one another. Belonging, a, yeah. Sense of belonging, sense mm-hmm. of purpose. Mm-hmm. Important, important things. Critical. So uh, we talked a little bit about what may, might make you optimistic about this time. Any concerns? I think along those lines is that there isn't learning, that mm. we actually return to before, just sort of, well, whatever, and carry on. <laughs> that w- I think that would be traumatic to us as human beings. I don't know in all of history when something of this sort of global impact has occurred, that there wasn't learning moving forward, that there wasn't something different that came out of it. So I'm, I'm not even, I'm not afraid that we won't. I don't fear that we won't. I, I fear maybe for each individual that there will be people who don't and not because they can't, because they choose not to. Hmm. And it's interesting because I think a lot of people carry that same concern that we can't walk away from this experience and not take anything from it and consider how it can help enhance our experience mm-hmm. as people. Yeah, like collectively as humanity, it's the evolution of humanity. Every time I think we've been faced with something cataclysmic in its nature, and I am no, by no means a historian buff at all. <laughs> if we take a look back at those kinds of cataclysmic events in history and we say, well, what did the next 20 years look like? Ooh, that was a lot different than the previous 20 years, wasn't it? Yes. So it's perhaps these are the elements that must happen in order for us to evolve collectively as humanity. And every time we've had an evolution, there are things that become extinct. I'm curious to know what the, like, I'm kind of curious, super excited, curious as to what those things will be. Me too. Mm -hmm. So Teresa, this has been a great conversation. As we get close to the end here, what would be the best piece of advice that you could give folks given our current state um, and how to stay connected with one another? I like habits, rituals. I find that they, the consistency of them is what is necessary to help us move forward and to really sort of gain the benefit. So, you know, I'm a runner. If I only went for one run, running would always be very difficult. I would never gain any of the benefits. And so I run consistently four times per week since I was 15. I have definitely gained the benefits of running for 32 years. I've been a runner. I've definitely gained those benefits. And I think that we can apply this same principle into our habits around connection connecting with people face-to-face in conversation. And let's start within our homes because when we do it in our homes, it expands outside of our homes. And this is sort of the richness of the dynamic of the families. We have the capacity to change the world, one person, one family at a time. So if we choose to do it with ourselves and we choose to do it with our family, then we can expand that. Simple things like no devices at the dinner table, simple things like conversation around the dinner table about what what are we grateful for? What is it that we learned about ourselves? Taking these moments and being able to expand into the depths of who we are as individuals and wanting to hold space for other people 
to do that exploration. Because if we're willing to do it for ourselves, then it's really easy to do for other people. And sometimes right now where people are starting from is they're uncomfortable doing it for themselves, so but they will do it for other people. I don't care what order you want to start in or what order you need to start in, just perhaps that you start in one of those two ways. Create the space for other people, ask questions, get deep. Oh man, I would just love a world in which everyone had taken the time to do that and really get grounded in who they are as an individual. I think it would change the landscape of who we are as a race. That is a phenomenal and impactful call to action. Teresa Quinlan, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Rebecca. In a rapidly changing world, or a significantly disrupted world as we're living in today, Teresa reminds us that we have the ability to ground ourselves in who we truly are. In doing this, we can improve our ability to help those around us and appreciate those things that we truly need. This is an opportunity for us to learn from what we're feeling in the moment. Learn about ourselves. Learn about those around us and learn about how we can work together to shape the world and the future that we envision. So I challenge you to do just that. Center in who you truly are and seek to understand those around you and take what you learn to make the world a little better. And while you're at it, go on, go help shape the future. To learn more about Teresa and the amazing work she does, Visit her website at iqeqtq.com. That's iqeqtq.com. I am Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then. Hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Music by Ryan Sullivan, Rebecca Scott, and Victoria Scott. Credits and resources from this episode can be found in the episode notes at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.